Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Scott Atlas. I'm the Robert Wesson Senior Fellow, and I'm delighted to welcome everyone to uh, Hoover Capital Conversation. Uh, today's is entitled Federalism at Work, A Governor's Perspective, with our special guest, Governor Christy Nome. Capital Conversations is an ongoing series featuring discussions between uh, Hoover scholars uh, who generate ideas that enable a free society and leaders who turn those into actionable policies. We invite you to listen and participate in discussions between our issue uh, experts uh, and our policymakers as they consider solutions to some of our nation's most difficult problems and we happen to have several right now. As I mentioned, we'll be talking to South Dakota Governor Christy Nome. Uh, it's a great honor to uh, welcome Governor Nome to Hoover. Uh, as part of this discussion, before I begin with a formal introduction, I uh, just want to have our audience realize that we will be taking audience questions. We encourage you to submit yours uh, on the uh, Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. So with that, I will uh, get started. Uh, again, it's an honor to be here talking with uh, one of our nation's leading governors, Governor Christy Nome of South Dakota. Uh, Governor Nome uh, wears many hats, not just a rancher's hat, but she is a wife, a mother, a lifelong rancher, farmer, and small business owner. She uh, started her federal government career in 2010 after serving in the South Dakota State Legislature for several years as she was elected to serve as South Dakota's lone member of the U.S. House of Representatives. During her time in Congress, in addition to many other successes, Governor Nome helped pass the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which put at the time, $2,400 back into the pockets of the average uh, South Dakota family, her constituents. In 2018, running on the platform of protecting South Dakotans against tax increases, government growth, federal intrusion, and government secrecy, she was elected as South Dakota's first ever female governor. As governor, uh, she has respected the rights of her people by trusting them with her actions to exercise their own personal responsibility and allow them to make the best decisions for themselves and their families and in turn for their communities. And uh, we'll talk about this in some detail, but this approach has been most evident in her response to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, in which it's very notable that Governor Nome did not order any single business or church to close and never issued a statewide shelter in place order. And I will point out that uh, she is the only governor that never closed any businesses by state order. Despite all of her work and her, uh, her successes in that career, she often says that her greatest accomplishment is raising her three children, Cassidy, Kennedy, and Booker, with her husband, Brian, and they have a very uh, family-centered uh, environment in her home uh, that is centered around, in her words, deep love for their family and for God. And I will uh, 
full disclosure, I have known Governor Nome since last summer, uh, and I was uh, very impressed with uh, her own attitude as a governor, one of the few governors who wanted to know the data that is a second level below the headline level. Uh, and it brings back the recollection of uh, sort of how the press uh, handled things and how Governor Nome wanted to know the facts uh, in response. One was the summer event at Mount Rushmore, where I have a, a very vivid recollection of how the press was uh, going off on this outdoor event with uh, hundreds of people. And yet Governor Nome and her staff figured out that, well, there were never any cases really that arose out of that outdoor event, which of course, as we know, the virus doesn't really spread outdoors well. Uh, and uh, But they wanted to pay attention to that detail. So with that, um, welcome Governor Nome. We're excited for today's conversation. Well, thank you, Dr. Atlas. I I'm so grateful for the invitation to be with all of you. This is a great honor for me. And absolutely, I appreciated so much your wisdom and insight in getting us and helping us in South Dakota and me in particular make decisions for my people throughout the pandemic. Um, the fear and uh, division that I saw the media and the liberals perpetuate during this pandemic was unprecedented. And it was so wonderful to be able to access real scientific research and information that I could use to make wise decisions for our state. So um, you have been a wonderful connector for me, a, a, a place that I can get information that's helpful. And as leaders, boy, we need more of that honesty and integrity in, in some of our healthcare uh, folks these days, that's for sure. Well, thank you. Uh, so let, let's talk a little bit about the pandemic before we move on to other issues, because as we know, the pandemic and the management really exposed many big issues for the country and about the country and how we're gonna move forward. But first, I, I sort of would like to highlight uh, your philosophy uh, and, and how, it, you know, how it was centered in your management of the pandemic in, uh, in South Dakota. Well, I'll just remind everybody that I was raised on a farm and a ranch in South Dakota. So with a family that was not political at all, uh, we did very much value our way of life, though, and we were um, a religious family that spent a lot of time together that certainly appreciated our freedoms and our liberties. So I was raised uh, knowing that America was special, knowing that our Constitution mattered, and that all of our laws uh, that came forward that we lived by needed to be based on that document, which really was the structure that keeps this country so amazing. Uh, so when I got into politics, it was really because of a, a tragedy in our family. And I used that common sense upbringing and applied it to any that I have held. So when it came down to this pandemic, and we needed to start making decisions to prepare for the virus to hit our state, um, the first question I asked my general counsel that I asked constitutional attorneys is, what is my job? What authority do I have? and what authority do I not have? We quickly knew that we were gonna be in an unprecedented situation. We hadn't had a pandemic for over a hundred years. So there was no model to follow as far as a previous display of decision-making that, that we could see and use as precedent and that we really needed to find our way doing this. And for me, the best guidepost was really what has protected this country 
and made sure that people still every day were able to be successful. So that question, I think, was unique among governors, maybe, uh, what my authority is, what authority don't I have, most of them. We're basing decisions off the science and the facts and the data originally, but not necessarily consulting what their job was as, as a government official, as a leader. And, and that was maybe, I think, in my discussions and hundreds of hours of conversations, the difference was that I, I knew what people wanted me to do, uh, but I also knew what was not my job. And I was raised to know that if you ask a government to do everything for you, that also is a government that's big enough to take everything away. And uh, I don't believe the government is always the best solution uh, to people's problems. So I, I do want to point out uh, that you really were the only governor who didn't close any businesses. And I, I read your comment about that, which is that every business is essential to those who are dependent on the business. And I think that really, uh, it, it, it sounds very simple, but this is something that just was not understood by the people uh, making these kinds of decisions. You know, uh, we're, we're in the era now where we're going uh, in a very aggressive way toward getting protection for those who are most vulnerable, and that is meaning the vaccines for people who are at risk. And I want to point out, uh, although there's this message uh, that somehow the Americans are not highly vaccinated and, you know, nationally over 90 percent of Americans who are 65 and over, which is the high risk group, have received a vaccine. But I, I, you were very uh, out front on making sure that the elderly got vaccinated. And even today, I checked today and South Dakota is uh, at 95 percent of people over 65 have been vaccinated and maybe you can comment on how you how you got that accomplished well we could see from the very beginning who the vulnerable population was going to be and then looking at our uh, demographics here in south dakota we have an older population we're one of the states that has uh, more people in that in that age group than many others and we also knew that we had people that had health conditions that would make them at greater risk. So we started early on educating them about the virus, what actions they could take long before there was even a vaccine, uh, that they could make the decision to, to try to stay home, that we would get them the essentials they would need. They needed to wash their hands, be careful, stay healthy, get exercise, take vitamins and supplements that would build their immunity. And then as the vaccines came out, we started giving them information on what we knew could help protect their health and keep them from getting very ill that would end up in a hospitalization or even death. And I think that proactive approach to the education piece, we didn't use a bully pulpit. We didn't go out there and mandate it. Uh, we worked with them and wanted them to feel very comfortable with the information that they were getting and then to make that decision for themselves. I'm not sure where we cut off on that, but essentially how we got those individuals to be vaccinated was that uh, we worked with our hospital systems and our healthcare systems, but then also partnered with them as a state and as a National Guard with those resources to make sure that we weren't creating a whole new deployment, but that we were partnering with them to get it out quicker when people were ready to be vaccinated. Yes, and that, that, that uh, is a segue to what's happening now, which is, uh, a lot of pressure on people to get vaccinated. 
uh, mm -hmm. questions about vaccine mandates and uh, vaccine passports. Maybe you could uh, tell our listeners what your thoughts are on these kinds of things, particularly the vaccine passports for, mm -hmm. issued by businesses, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's what's so um, tragic about what the Biden administration is doing is that by demonizing the American people, by talking about how he frustrated he is with them, with talking about that he's lost his patience, is that he's causing people to be more uncertain about the vaccine and really what their decision-making process might be. So, you know, I, I think first of all, the language coming out of the federal government is unfortunate and doing harm. Here in South Dakota, I have signed an executive order that has banned vaccine passports. I have told my state that we will not be mandating any vaccines. And I've also told the president that if he comes forward and releases guidelines on uh, mandating to businesses that they have to vaccinate their employees, that we will take him to court. It's very clear in the constitution that those issues that deal with public health and safety are to the states, they're delegated to the states and local governments, and it is not the role of the federal government. Uh, so he is far outside of his authority. If he does follow through on this, that South Dakota will lead the challenge in pushing back on that and fighting off that federal government intrusion on our people. And speaking of that, uh, what what uh, is the feeling uh, from you on uh, schools and uh, requiring children to be either vaccinated, tested, or wearing masks in school. What has your policy been on that? Uh, we don't have a policy on any of those. Um, I have not said that children need to be vaccinated or need to wear masks or even need to be home. I have encouraged all of our children to be in school and they have been in school full-time throughout the pandemic. Uh, there are some parents that may choose something different, and we have built out high-speed broadband internet access across our state so that parents have the access to do that when they would want to or if their children should be sick. But our local school boards are making individual decisions, but overwhelmingly at my encouragement and my partnership with them to protect health, those kids are in classrooms, they're not wearing masks, they're learning and they're recognizing the value of that in this day and age. Um, I think a lot of folks across our state saw the damage that happened when kids in certain areas were not in classrooms and even when they were impaired by their ability to learn uh, because of different requirements that were placed on them. So overwhelmingly South Dakota is recognizing the value of um, normal life, normal learning for our children, and also saw the detrimental effects on their mental health and their emotional stability when huge dramatic changes were made in many other states. I think, Dr. Atlas, what's, what's interesting is how many people have moved to South Dakota. We have had thousands of people move to this state so their kids could be in classrooms and have a normal life. Um, it's been amazing to me for people to recognize that across the country and move here just so that their kids could get an education again. And with that move, uh, we were briefly talking, but uh, I'd like to hear some of the details on how you've done by avoiding that lockdown and by encouraging individual freedom on the economic rebound in your state. Well, for us in South Dakota, I never once closed a single business and was very clear about that. Uh, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, that I also didn't even define what an essential business was, that I didn't believe um, I had the ability to tell people that their business wasn't essential. And frankly, if you look at the guidelines of this country, um, 
if I were to close a business, that would be a taking of their business. And I could open up the taxpayers of the state to liability for the ramifications of doing something like that. Uh, I never once issued a shelter in place and never mandated anything such as masks. I told my people I would trust them. I'd give them all the information and the data that I had, and I would let them use personal responsibility to make the best decisions for their health and their well-being and help take care of their families. Uh, and, and they responded to that and appreciated that. And we partnered on deploying and needed resources. We partnered with them on getting them information and then worked very well with our hospital systems as well. What that did in turn, I think, was really put a spotlight on South Dakota. Because we were the only state to make those decisions, the rest of the country started to notice. And frankly, they started to notice because a lot of people on the left, like Rachel Maddow and Elizabeth Warren, started to attack me every single night on the national news, uh, calling me reckless and irresponsible and uh, doing great damage to my people. But but it started to resonate with folks how different it was and the benefits of that. Our economy continued on. People got up every day and went to work. Uh, we never offered those elevated unemployment benefits in our state. Again, the only, the only state to not accept those. In fact, I told the president at the time, thank you for the flexibility, but our people want to work. And we kept food on the table and we kept roofs over our, over our, our heads and did very well. We now have the fastest growing economy in the country. Um, and we are, our GDP rate is around 9.9%. We have one of the lowest unemployment rates. I have right around 1,000 people in the entire state of South Dakota that are on unemployment today. I have 27,000 open jobs. So I've got a lot of growth and a lot of businesses that have relocated here for the certainty that we provide. Uh, and everybody's working, obviously, but, um, but we also are recruiting people to fill those jobs that we have a need for. And it really points to the fact that if you give people freedom and personal choice, that they really want to be there and they do thrive. Yeah, that's quite impressive. Let's move on to some of the other issues that are sort of uh, what I would call hot button issues. Mm -hmm. One, of course, is the controversies about curriculum in schools. We're talking about schools and lockdowns or closures, but now uh, there's a big debate in the communities all across the country on the curriculum being taught in schools mm -hmm. and uh, what's happened with uh, public schools versus and how the parents are reacting and what they're doing. I'd like to hear what's going on in South Dakota there. Sure. So when I ran for governor in 2018, I talked about the fact that I wanted to put more history and civics into our K-12 system, that I believed our kids needed to know more about our, our background, where we came from, the importance of our history so we could learn from it and make better decisions in the future. Uh, and what was interesting is I proposed to build that first legislative session uh, in January of 2019, and it was defeated. And it was defeated by Republicans. Uh, that even at that time, Republicans didn't want to put a burden on our schools, didn't feel like we should be telling them what to, what to teach. And just two years later, overwhelmingly now, Republicans have passed that bill that I brought to them two years ago. They've realized what's going on in our school systems and recognized that we need to have a true and an honest history taught to our children so they really can celebrate the amazing accomplishments that this country has stood for and our leaders and recognizing they also have flaws. Uh, 
and learn from them and continue to strive to do better. I was the first candidate for office this year that signed on to the 1776 pledge, which was the pledge that said we were going to teach a, a patriotic and true, honest history of this country. I'd encourage everybody that if you have someone that is running for national office, state office, local, school board, even city council, encourage them to take that pledge. What that pledge says is that we won't embrace critical race theory. We will push back against the 1619 project that we recognize the importance of America's past and we'll stay true to what those facts are and make sure that we're working every single day to keep them in our classroom so our kids learn the honest history of the United States of America. So very proud of the fact that I worked with Newt Gingrich and with Dr. Ben Carson to develop that pledge and push it out across the country so that when people vote for individuals, uh, they know that they're voting for someone who really does love this country, our history, and believes in our future. Uh before we get off on schools, I, I want to give you the uh, chance to talk about an issue that you've been in the news at least a while ago. The news cycle moves pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the issue of uh, the NCAA, uh, the law that was supposedly going to ban biological males from competing in uh, female sports, and you got a little heat from uh, particularly the conservative side of the world on, uh, on not uh, stopping or, or not signing that law. Maybe you could explain that for the viewers. Well, uh, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. We, we had a discussion in our legislative session about girls' sports. Now, for years, I have worked to protect and make sure that only girls play in girls' sports in the state of South Dakota. In fact, when I was in Congress, uh, the federal government said that in the sport of rodeo that we had to eliminate boys girls events girls events and boys events that there was no longer the ability to have separate events and i was the only person in congress as an elected official and in my state of south dakota that fought the federal government on that and said no we are going to protect women's events girls events and men's events in the sport of rodeo and got the federal government to back off at that time, nobody wanted to pick this fight because they felt it was too political and I couldn't get any help. So I'm, I'm pretty far out there on the fact where I stand on making sure that girls have the opportunity to play in girls' sports and that boys play in, in boys' sports. When this bill was proposed during our legislative session, it had some significant drafting flaws. In fact, those drafting flaws were so bad that as soon as I I got that bill, I recognized it would end up in court and be challenged immediately. Um, what I did is I issued a style and form revision and sent it back to my legislature and asked them to accept it uh, fixed so that it could be put into law and stand any court challenge and I would have the ability to enforce it. The legislature did not do that and the bill died. And the press covered it and conservatives covered it that I had vetoed the bill, which was an absolute lie. What I did was ask for changes and the legislature did not accept them. So the very next day, I put executive orders in place that said only girls could play in girls sports in our K-12 system and in our collegiate system in the state of South Dakota. So now they are protected by executive order. And when we go back into legislative session, I'll bring my own bills that will be able to be withheld in the state and will withstand a court challenge should that happen going forward. 
Um, what I learned throughout that whole experience, Scott, was that I had for years been bullied by liberals and by the left. I was, it was the first time I'd really been bullied by my friends. And I realized how competitive people could be, worried about the future, potentially thinking I might want to do something beyond being governor someday and were interested in doing me political damage early on. Um, but I want everybody to know the truth. And the truth is, is that I love being governor of South Dakota. I'm going to protect people. I'm going to be smart enough to make sure that I'm signing bills that I am able to enforce and to keep in place and not be thrown out in court and set up a precedent, which does great damage to the movement. And, and that is my job. And I will continue to do that. And I've always been out there very clearly stating that I believe only girls should play in girls sports and boys should play in boys sports. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. The, the only, it, it's really shocking to hear that the press wouldn't report it accurately. I mean, that's just so well, stunning. Well, that's what's stunning to me is that the instant the legislature rejected that bill, I signed those executive orders that protected girls sports. Nobody covered that. Nobody, yeah. and you still to this day when they write articles about it, don't say Governor Nome went out there and signed these executive orders and already has drafted legislation that will be proposed as soon as we go into session and will pass and be put codify those executive orders into statute in the state of South Dakota. But it fits somebody's political narrative. And I understand that it's politics, um, but I did not want to sign bad bills that would end up in court. And then I wouldn't be able to enforce anything as long as they were tied up in litigation. Yeah, makes sense. If you're just joining us, uh, by the way, I'm uh, Hoover Senior Fellow Scott Atlas. This is Hoover's Capital Conversations with South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. We will take questions shortly, so please submit your questions at the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. So let's move into some of these uh, sort of bigger issues that uh, I, I, I mentioned, and I think we all realize the pandemic exposed a lot of things uh, about the country, about the way the governance is uh, undertaken here, some of which was quite surprising to me and I'm sure to others. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the sort of movement of government toward the centralization uh, from what was supposed to be a federalist system toward a federal government? Uh, and so, you know, it, it specifically like, we see a lot more executive orders, not just at the top, but of course by the state governors, uh, et cetera. And uh, just like to hear your thoughts on sort of philosophically and uh, what you do as governor to stop that centralization. Yeah, it's alarming to me uh, to see the federal government consistently overstep its powers and put into place actions that it has no authority to do. Uh, we certainly have seen executive orders be used by both political parties over the years. Um, many times, um, you know, it has been effective for a short term, but everybody needs to remember that when that leader is gone, those executive orders go away as well. And it's not a long-term solution. Uh, we have a qualifier in my office that we don't do an executive order unless we're willing the next legislative session to put it and codify, codify it into our statute so that it is long lasting change and it will not be changed unless there is debate and the legislature weighs in and goes through that process in the future. Uh, what's unfortunate is that I 
I went from being governor under the last administration in the White House to being on offense every day and solving problems and looking for solutions that were innovative and were creating a smaller, more responsive government to people to as soon as the Biden administration came in being on defense. Uh, so many times they're taking away decision-making power from the states that the constitution delegated to us. Uh, they're overstepping uh, their authority and I need to be challenging that to protect my folks. Giving orders to our businesses that they shouldn't be doing, orders to our National Guard, uh, discussions on how our way of life will be. And, and for me now, much of my time is caught up in litigation, in court challenges, uh, just making sure that I am doing what I promised the people of South Dakota that I would do, and that's protect their way of life and to prevent federal government intrusion. I'm hopeful that we can see change in that. Uh, I think the way this country was structured was unique and special and that it is what has kept America free for hundreds of years. And, and my job as a, as a governor is to stand for that foundation or else the entire country falls apart. I uh, wanna ask a quick question, although I think I know quite well where you stand on this and that's on one of the many issues uh, of contention, which is uh, gun control. I think uh, if anybody knows you at all, they saw your tweet that went viral uh, that showed uh, you shooting. I think it was at a heat oh. shooting. Uh, and the, the caption was that you turned to the camera and said, that's how we do social distancing in South Dakota. <laughs> but uh, how, how are uh, the citizenry of South Dakota reacting to this discussion? And what are your plans on any kind of potential federal uh, uh, role in more government control of guns? Well, the very first bill I signed into law as governor was constitutional carry. Uh, and that bill had been rejected by a Republican governor uh, several years before I came into office. So that was a big change for the state of South Dakota to have someone be willing to embrace that, that right of individuals to bear arms and to protect the second amendment in our state. Um, I, people in the state overwhelmingly feel alarmed by the actions they see against uh, an individual's right to possess and to bear arms. Um, I know in our state, people recognize that it's a part of our history, our culture, our way of life. We live off the land here. We are one of the top uh, hunting and outdoors states in the nation. Um, it is how we spend time with our families. It's how we have vacations. We have a beautiful, diverse state where we love our wildlife and our habitat and take care of it so it can thrive. And, and we recognize our ties to the land and appreciation for those animals. So that, that engagement is very important to us, but we also recognize the need to protect ourselves and our families. And that this was a fundamental discussion back when we were fighting for freedom and liberty during the Revolutionary War and was a specific uh, debate at the time that our founders were discussing what this new country should look like and what rights the citizens should have. Uh, that is a, a belief that we are well-educated on, that we believe we will stand for, and that when you take away someone's right to bear arms, that that is truly when their liberties are gone. So 
we will have to continue to be smart and strategic on how we push back at this administration's desire to take away those rights. And it is one of the, the top rights that we believe ensures and protects all the other rights that are guaranteed to us in that constitution, that document, the Bill of Rights that we all value so much. Okay, let's move on to some of the questions I'm getting from the audience here. Okay. Uh, here's one from Bob. There seems to be a strong move on all levels of government to rely on executive orders rather than legislation. Why is that happening? Well, there's several different reasons. You can have an immediate impact. So for instance, in South Dakota, we only have a 40-day session in our state. We go into session before many other states do in January um, and the very first week of January, and we're done by the first week of March. So the rest of that year, there's not really an opportunity to put anything into law. We wait, again, another 10 months until we can go back into session. So for me, I have the ability to do an executive order to put something in place that can stand until I have the chance to put a statute on the books. Uh, in our state, that's how it's utilized. Uh, we do not bring executive orders for long-term purposes. They are there to secure and bring stability until statute can be placed. I would say in other instances, I've seen executives, executive orders be used out of laziness. Uh, they've been utilized because it's easier than having to educate people about the need for this policy and its mm -hmm. instant gratification. And let's be honest, Scott, we live in a country that lives on instant gratification and lack of discipline today. And we've got too many leaders that, that see something in the headlines and then say, all right, I'm gonna write an executive order and do it to get a headline for a week or two and don't necessarily recognize the impact that can have in the long run and why we need to have the stability of having something actually in law. So it's, it's utilized in different ways and I would encourage every leader to, to put things in statute because the debate, the committee hearings, the, the floor debate in the House and the Senate is incredibly important to learn more and to educate all members about why that is necessary and why it should be valid enough to put in statute. And when you bypass that and put it into executive order, you don't get all those benefits. But for us in South Dakota with such a short legislative session, at times it's necessary to keep a protection in place until we can get into legislative session and put it in law. Okay. Uh, David says, um, I particularly liked your passionate defense of businesses' freedoms, but that includes the right to tell potential customers and workers that they must get vaccinated. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, in South Dakota, I did not dictate to businesses how to handle this issue. And it's been controversial. But I believe that if I tell businesses that they can't mandate vaccines, um, if they can mandate vaccines, it's no different than uh, the Hobby Lobby case where the federal government was telling them they had to provide contraception, uh, that it's no different than telling bakers they have to bake cakes for individuals that they don't choose to, or they would want to make a different decision. So um, that, is, that is how I make my decisions is, is when, we look at the precedent and what my job is as a governor and as a leader, it's, it's not setting up a situation where we're hypocritical in saying, well, now this is something the government should step in and do. 
and allow those of the other opinion then to come back when they're in control and to do the exact same thing to us. So um, it is it is not an authority that I believe on private property rights, on private property that the government should be coming in and dictating those types of decisions to those owners. Um, mm-hmm. That is not my job. And I think people should be very careful what problems they ask the government to solve for them. A government that will solve all of your problems will also take away everything. And and many, many times the individual freedoms that we have also require us to take action on our, by ourselves and have the responsibility to take those actions as well that we seem are fit or we deem are fit. Okay, let's move on to another uh, somewhat controversial issue, which is abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, question here from Lou, what is your position on a woman's right to choose Do you believe in protecting that right as you do with sports? And the next part of it is, how do you feel about specifically the Texas law regarding a uh, six-week pregnancy limit for abortions? Well, my team is looking at the Texas law to see if that is something that we could put into place here in South Dakota. So I thought that was a victory for life when we had that decision come out of the Supreme Court. Uh, there, when it comes to pro-life litigation, legislation, and issues, it's about protecting an innocent life. This is an individual that has no opportunity to speak for itself, and that we should in this country stand for that life having the ability to come to fruition. Um, you know, we've, we've watched a lot of these different issues come forward, and I recently brought forward um, some some proposals and an executive order that we will have during legislative session and deal with as well that deals with telemedicine and the ability to get an abortion by telemedicine. For years, we've listened to those uh, that want a woman to have a choice uh, and have it be between her and her doctor are now saying that a woman should be able to get an abortion from any stranger over the internet and over the phone. Uh, that the Biden administration is pushing down a regulation that says a woman can utilize telemedicine to get a chemical that allows them to have an abortion from anybody that they would be able to to get to write a prescription from somewhere in the country or in the world. Uh, For me, uh, that is not right. Those chemical abortions are four times more dangerous and uh, it completely uh, exposes that individual to more harm but also makes it so much easier to end that innocent life. So I've, I've never been in a gray area here. I, I believe these, these lives need to be protected. They deserve a right to live. Um, science has overwhelmingly continued to prove to us that this is a life from the moment of conception. It's not theoretical anymore. The data and the facts and science have backed us up the more and more that we've learned and that uh, this is an issue where we should stand on the side of what is right. Okay, Sarah asked a question. uh, When someone says that critical race theory is a result of the systemic unfortunate continuings in different socioeconomic statuses across the United States as a result of American history, what would you say to that? I would firmly disagree with that. You know, critical race theory is racism in itself, and it is pushing division among people based on their culture, the color of their skin, and not on the content of their character. And and so I fundamentally disagree 
um, passionately disagree. And American history has proven over and over again that yes, we've made mistakes. Yes, our leaders have made mistakes and we should continue to learn from them. But this country was founded on freedom and our leaders fought for freedom of individuals to have the right to go out and provide for their families and, and make a living in a way that respects each of them, not based on their skin color, but based on, on who they are and the fact that they are a human being. So um, I think that what we see is an agenda that's being perpetuated to further divide this country. And we need to stand firmly on the side of truth and continue to unite Americans. That our greatest strength is that we are a people who believed in each other and recognized that, that we should be serving each other and optimistic and happy. We continue to live in the greatest country in the world. We just get up every morning and seem to forget how blessed we are. What I'd like to hear your thoughts on the, uh, the issue of uh, the Southern border. I, I know that South Dakota is not near the Southern border, but these issues of course affect the entire country. And as, as you know, Governor Abbott, some governors uh, sent assistance to the uh, Texas border for the enforcement of immigration law. What 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 is uh, your thinking on that, and what 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 did you do? Yes, it's been a huge concern of mine all along. In fact, when the Texas and Arizona governors asked for assistance, South Dakota responded. Uh, I sent my National Guard down there to partner with the Texas National Guard, and they just returned from a sixty-day deployment down there, helping to secure that border. Uh, the reason I sent my National Guard is because I looked at the situation they were going to be in down there. Our Guard is specifically trained for war. They're specifically trained to go in and cooperate with other teams, other agencies and departments, and to fill in the gaps and to help face the types of situations that we're seeing down there at the border. And I wanted to be a part of the solution, not just for national security issues, but because so many of the problems that we deal with here in South Dakota are coming across that border. Uh, we have a vast majority of the drugs that comes into the Midwest are flowing through my Native American reservations that come across the Southern border. Human trafficking we see in this country is prevalent and much of that is coming across the Southern border. So we are having an impact on our people here in South Dakota, on our communities and our guard uh, needed to be there to help secure that border um, because of all those reasons, because of the national security threat that we face, because of the drugs and the human trafficking that's happening, and we were grateful to be a part of the mission. They are home now for a short period of time, but they have been asked to return. I'll be sending another 125 individual guard members down there in October for a redeployment to help with that border situation. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about... Uh ensuring fair elections um you know this is a this is an issue we just had the uh recall election uh in california and of course everyone in california got sent uh, ballots whether they were requested or not i'm just curious uh, what are your thoughts and uh how does that work in south dakota and what do you do specifically to uh, maintain and ensure fair legitimate elections yeah, I think mail-in ballots are concerning um, because of the lack of accountability that we see that has happened from state to state uh, through the last election cycle, what just happened in California, and the opportunity for there to be um, just a lack of 
of real ability to track and make sure that those are all valid voters. In South Dakota, you have to have an ID in order to vote, a driver's license or birth certificate. You vote on or before election day. If you do want to vote and you won't be able to go in on that day, uh, you will have to request an absentee ballot. Um, and that is something that I think builds a lot of integrity into our system where we haven't had those issues in our state. Um, we largely in most of our, our counties um, and the vast majority of our population votes on paper. And we have the ability to go back then and make sure and uh, that there is an accurate accounting for every single individual that did cast their vote and make sure that that was a person who lived in our state was a valid voter and that it could be counted properly. Uh, so we have avoided many of the issues that many other states have. And I think it's because even though there was a pandemic going on, uh, we did not change how we vote uh, because we wanted to be able to trust those results and know that the right people are in those positions of power. I have a question here from uh, the audience. Uh, any messages that you have to the veterans and what are your thoughts on the wake of the uh, Biden administration's performance in uh, Afghanistan? You know, it, it's horrific what we see going on in Afghanistan. And I think we all understand the failure of this administration and how, how unprecedented it is and the damage that it has done, not just to our country, but our national security and these individuals that step up and serve in our military each and every day. What's, what shocked me the most, though, was the amount of veterans who served on the War of, on Terror and served in Afghanistan or Iraq that said to me over the last several weeks now, Christy, I don't know if it was worth it. Governor, I don't, I don't know if my service mattered. And, and I have spent a vast majority of my time letting them know that it was worth it because they were there and they served and they protected us. We did not have a conflict or an event here and our homeland, that our children slept safely in our beds because they were there and they were serving. And because they were there, Afghan women and children now know that there is a different way of life. They now know that there is such an opportunity for education, for freedom, and can continue to passionately fight for that and that we will stand by them. So uh, what, what happened in Afghanistan um, is hard to explain. I firmly believe, Scott, that it was on purpose. I think a lot of people think it was a mistake. I, I think these decisions that were made were so um, different than the protocols and the requirements that happened within the Department of Defense that how could they possibly have been carried out the way that they were without it being a literal decision from the commander in chief. So that is the reality that, that I believe we need to deal with and that we need to start making our decisions as a people uh, to hold, hold uh, these leaders accountable for the decisions that they made to expose us and, to a failure in Afghanistan like we've never seen in this country before. Okay, I'm gonna finish up with a final question from several people here. Uh, looking at the 2024 presidential election, uh, the questions are, would you support President Trump if he runs again? And uh, would you consider running uh, in the future? Yes, I would support President Trump again in the future. Um, I campaigned for him in 17 
different states um, because I knew what would happen if President Biden had the opportunity to take over the White House and how fundamentally this country would change. I didn't know he would wreck the country this fast. Uh, that was remarkable to watch how quickly he has devastated us. But but President Trump, I, I loved working with him because he was one of the very few people that I worked with in public office that actually did what he said he was going to do. He followed through on things. He was a problem solver. And with the political climate that we have today, we need fighters. Um, so I would support him. And uh, I think that that really, we need a leadership change in this country. I am solely focused on being the governor of South Dakota. I ran for governor because I love this state and I wanted to be here with my people. So I just want to be able to go to bed every night knowing that I did my job protecting this country and did all that I could to give my kids and my grandkids an opportunity to grow up like I did. Um, I, I do not want to end my life thinking I got selfish and, and didn't do my part. And so that's what I'm focused on each and every day. And I think that we'd be incredibly blessed to have leaders in the White House again that truly felt the same way about the United States of America. Okay, well, I think uh, we're going to end on that note. I want to thank you, Governor Noam, so much for your time. It was a great conversation. Great seeing you again. Uh, and for the uh, audience, you can learn more about this series at hoover.org forward slash capital conversations. Uh, I'm Hoover Institution Senior Fellow Scott Atlas. My forthcoming book, by the way, is about COVID, a plague on our house. My fight at the Trump White House to stop COVID from destroying America. If you want to be shocked about what happened in the task force and in the White House and learn a little bit about uh, big issues that come out of it, uh, you might want to take a look. It'll be out in November. Thank you all for joining us today. Hope you'll tune back in for future conversations. Thank you, Governor Noam, again. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it.